0: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have another episode of the podcast for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, COVID and the COVID epidemic, unsurprisingly. Also, this weird uh, combination of federal law enforcement slash election campaign actions uh, coming out of the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department. And it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard to disentangle which is which. I mean, my sense is that it's, it's heavily uh, electoral. And I noticed there was, I think there was, well, I guess a lot has happened even this morning. We are, we are recording this at noon, a little after noon, on Wednesday, uh, July 29th, 2020. And uh, just not, uh, this morning, President Trump did one of his, you know, kind of brief press availabilities and basically said, you know... It's up to the Oregon folks to get Portland in line or we're, we're going to have to go in there and clean it out, you know, kind of settle this once and once and for all. And then like what, an hour later, the governor of Oregon goes on Twitter and says, yeah, I just talked to Mike Pence and they're 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 pulling out the federal forces. So like what? You know what? What happened there? And then I think there was just and an Matt, uh, uh, our colleague Matt, who's joining us today, uh, Kate Riga is on vacation. I would think we will probably talk about this. They just announced that basically uh, the you know federal federal troops, federal forces being sent into major swing state cities in in the uh, in the Rust Belt. What is it? Wisconsin, Michigan. What, what are the what are those the three they just announced?
1: It was uh, Milwaukee, Cleveland, and Detroit, I believe. Although the White House sort of announced them last week without meaning to, um, so we can get
2: into that.
0: Right. So I guess and it does it 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 certainly seems like the idea is you, you you send in, I don't know exactly which agency they're sending in, but you send in federal officers to kind of drum up a sense of dangerous, out-of-control cities to kind of push the suburbs in swing states back into the Republican column. Whether that works or not, who knows, uh, but we're going to talk about that. Um, before... We uh say anymore. Um we are going to, you know, it's 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 funny, David. I got all queued up here with my Grady's Cold Brew uh Ice uh Coffee Sponsorship ad copy. And then just as we were getting started, I was like, oh, I gotta clean off my desktop here in front <laughs> of the computer, and kind of shut, shut a few browsers. So I looked up to to um to find the copy and it was the, the browser was closed. But I'm really uh quick on my feet, so I got it here. Uh, Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans-style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew-it-yourself bean bags shipped directly to your door for less than a buck cup. And the system couldn't be easier to use. I know this from personal experience. It's really that easy. Just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping's free on all Grady's. Grady's Bean Bag Products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, you can pick it up at your local grocery store or at Amazon.com. So, uh, David, what what are we doing?
2: Well, before we go on to the main topics, I actually noticed New York Magazine gave Grady's a shout out for its ingenious design. They were doing a series of posts on kind of products or, you know, they have kind of a little shopping affiliate. Oh, uh, right. Interesting. Affiliate site called The Strategist, and they featured the brew it, like the bean bag. Oh, brew the bag, it inside the, the thing. bag.
0: Well, I think I, I remember when um, we had got, it was probably like a year ago now, we actually had Grady, and there is a Grady. This isn't just like a, a, a kind of a focus grouped, you know, kind of <laughs> right. faux, you know, faux founder. There really is a Grady. And uh, Grady was saying that I guess they were... The first uh, you know ice coffee uh, cold brew ice coffee uh, vendor to come up with this you know bean bag system now obviously the idea that you soak uh, coffee grounds is is not you know people have done that for some time but basically packaging it that way where it's all kind of you know, kind of done in a certain way. You could do it yourself without a lot of uh, contraptions and stuff that they were the first ones to have that. And I guess everybody else has, or all the other vendors have, have kind of uh, jumped in, but I know he was pretty, uh, pretty proud of that, of that uh, innovation in the yeah. cold brew ice coffee. Exactly. Space. I mean, it really
2: is, it really is as simple as just pouring water. So, you know, if you haven't tried it out, definitely worth a shot. Yep. So, On to the news. Matt, just before we signed on to record, uh, some news out of Congress regarding the coronavirus. Representative Louie Gohmert from Texas has tested positive, and this comes after the congressman has perpetually refused to wear a mask on Capitol Hill. It seems like, you know, the mask wearing in Congress is hit or miss. On the Senate side, it seems like people are you know, follow the rules pretty closely. A bit less so on the House side, with some Trump allies refusing to to cover their faces in in the halls of Congress. gomert is one of those who has not worn a mask in public. In fact, he was at the House Judiciary with, Committee hearing with Bill Barr yesterday. Walked in behind the Attorney General, maskless. Uh, you had just put together kind of a, a post looking at all the various things he said on the coronavirus in the kind of weeks and months leading up to today, what can you share some of the greatest hits with our listeners?
1: Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I've gotten really good at this over these past few weeks of something happens and then you go back through that person or that publication or that conspiracy theory movement's history of uh, COVID denial. And the congressman, you know, he, he he's not denied that the virus exists, but pretty early on, he's kind of dismissed it's uh the threat of its spread and he's sort of minimized uh, its effects on people Um, he was actually involved in one of the earliest COVID exposures that made the news i'm not sure if you remember the conservative political action conference where there was a staffer backstage who was later uh, diagnosed with covid and a few uh, lawmakers i think uh, mark meadows uh, at that point, who was the incoming White House chief of staff chose to uh, um, quarantine or minimize their public appearances, and Gomert was one that said, "Nope, I'm going to keep uh, doing com- you know Capitol building tours for hundreds of people." I'm you know he he was kind of just uh, uh, just raged forward. Um, And it's been going on like that ever since, even though, again, he was one of the earliest exposures to make the news. Uh, In April, he claimed that there was a mist in Germany that could kill the virus for two weeks. Uh, You know, anything, basically anything that comes in contact with this mist, he said, um, will be uh, killed
0: uh, for two weeks, like um, a mist that someone had created, or kind of like a fog had come in, and and all the COVID was going away. He
1: he was he was making he was uh, making a reference to a product that he said was being developed in Arizona, and I don't think that's ac- actually ever been determined that that product even existed. But then in an interview, he compared it to a product that he said existed in Germany, where you know a nurse who's all in scrubs would go into a tent and they get sprayed with a mist, and now they're basically COVID. Proof and PolitiFact at the time got in touch with a uh, uh, public health officials in uh, Germany who, was, who were like, no, not, nothing like that exists. A COVID spokesperson uh, said at the time uh, that, you know, PolitiFact wasn't acting honorably and the congressman will show proof of his claim on his own time and so on. And I don't think ever, anything ever came of that. Um, just one in a number. He, he supports defunding the uh, World Health Organization. He pushed in, on April 23rd to reopen uh, Texas because, quote, we're social animals. And of course, Texas did reopen a week later. And uh, we know what happened after that. There was a, a spike, subsequent spike in the, in the case. Uh, and yeah, just like uh, uh, David said, uh, he's been one of these uh, members of Congress who's kind of stubbornly refused to wear a mask he's he's worn masks um in committee meetings where democratic chairs have required
0: them um but wasn't for example, there wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't there one hearing where he actually got an, got an argument over it though am, I, am there I may have confusing been. him with someone else i don't want to i don't want to distract you from your line of thought but i thought there was i thought there was one case but uh, you know maybe it was another kind of uh rep from this kind of political space who who you know you know, kind of banged his shoe on the table metaphorically about having to wear his, having to wear a mask or something.
2: Right. I know Gomer did tell CNN, I think in June, that one of the reasons he wasn't wearing a mask is because he said he was tested frequently for COVID, and that if he does come down with the virus, he'll be all about masks. So I guess now time will tell if there's yeah, true. Yeah.
1: I mean, that that was the main thing uh, uh, that I found on him talking about his his mask yeah, policy. Yeah. I, that I if, may have been. I may have been thinking the same way.
0: Yeah. Is it and it's also just just for just for our listeners to know, uh, you know, this is potentially a serious situation. I think he's sixty six years old. Um, I I don't know his his you know his his uh, current health condition pre COVID, um, but obviously people over sixty five, uh, it's a it's for real. Um, so I don't I guess I, I assume at the moment he is either asymptomatic or just mildly symptomatic since he was just tested do we know his current condition i mean i guess I he was know. he was up there yesterday so he 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 must have been asymptomatic or or you know right not very symptomatic as recently as yesterday
2: i know that jake sherman of politico who was uh, i think the reporter who broke this news initially had tweeted just before we came on to record that gomer actually told his staff in person today that he contracted coronavirus <laughs> so he must he must not be feeling too poorly, I guess, in order, you know, to be able to, to share that news generously in person with his colleagues. Right, Mm -hmm. right, right.
1: I don't think he's commented on his specific condition though yet. Just, we just have a confirmation that he's, he's confirmed positive.
2: To your, to your point, Josh, about the potential severity. I mean, look at Herman Cain, who, Tested positive for coronavirus, he was at Trump's rally in Tulsa in late June, and I think he was hospitalized maybe on July first or second. Yeah, and been, his office—I yeah. mean, his Twitter account announced today Herman Cain is still in the hospital receiving oxygen treatment. So that's you know several weeks after that initial news. So um,
0: and the other the other thing, I mean, I, I we we don't know his condition, but I I will point out that they the the tweet on his account that was you know ob- obviously by people acting on his behalf giving an update spoke very vaguely about being you know treated with oxygen and they certainly didn't say he was a ventilator uh, on a ventilator and and hopefully he's not since obviously that's a very that's a very bad place to get uh for an older person on on covid but um uh, it didn't it it sounded like that might be a way to refer to mechanical ventilation i mean obviously a lot of people just get the little kind of face mask you know with with uh, supplemental oxygen to kind of keep their oxygenation levels a little higher, but that didn't sound great and 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 for a man uh I think in his mid seventies who uh survived cancer some years ago um Uh, You know, being for a month, that's bad. Uh, And that made me kind of a little skeptical that he's just, you know, he's been in in the hospital for a month and he's just getting, you know, kind of supplemental oxygen. You know, again, the kind of thing I think most of us know where you get a little, you know, uh, transparent mask that just kind of ups the the concentration of oxygen as opposed to mechanical ventilation so it is i mean we know this it's serious stuff it's 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 particularly serious if if you are um a senior so uh, you know notwithstanding uh his uh, irresponsible behavior and talk we obviously uh, wish him the best because it's a serious yeah. thing he's got uh you know got family like the rest of us
1: Absolutely. The, the one thing on... Uh, sorry to interrupt, but the one thing on Gomer and just to underline that, you know, we don't cover stuff like this to make light of people's situations, but he has been uh, a leading voice against... Um, uh, Keeping people vote, healthy. Pro, well, proxy voting in particular. Oh, right. Um, right, right he right. gave a speech... That he compared it to, you know, people in the Spanish flu and people in the Civil War. They didn't they didn't complain about being afraid. They didn't have these wishy-washy concerns of dying, I think is how he put it. So it's in that context of him uh, uh, urging and, and voting for his, fe- his fellow lawmakers to be there with him while he's maskless that we're reporting on all of this.
0: And I think, you know, one thing we definitely need to, you know, collectively get away from is that this isn't this isn't a matter of like personal bravery. We're trying to make a disease. We're trying to make fewer people get the disease because that disease in the population has all sorts of negative effects. It keeps the economy from running at a, at a good level. Uh, It, it creates, it, it costs huge amounts of money. It causes immense levels of personal suffering, both direct and indirect. So this is, you know, you may be, you know, kind of so balls up, you don't care about getting, you know, bitten in half by a shark, great. But that's really not the point. It's not about, it's not about personal bravery. It's about acting in a way that doesn't, you know, screw things up for everybody else. And that really is, you know, the kind of the non-mask thing. That's really kind of what that's about, right? Kind of, it's, it's, it's just about me. I can't, I can't, I can't manage this really minor inconvenience to just keep every, you know, keep everybody else healthy.
2: Yeah. Josh, I wanted to touch next on a post that you wrote late last week, looking at why New York's numbers have remained so low as, you know, cases explode in other parts of the country. Obviously, this is something of a reversal from the spring when New York was really the kind of global epicenter for the virus. And now from the numbers I've seen over the last few days, our positivity. Uh, test, testing is in about like 1%, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more.
0: Yeah, I actually just, as we were, as we were recording, um, I, I, the, the the daily numbers come out around noon in New York every day, and they they actually show up first in a kind of a uh, in a, in a limited form on the governor's Twitter account, and then they they you know show up on the portals a short time later. So today, or you know, reporting today, there were seven hundred and fifteen new cases, which is a, you know they range. For almost two months now, they have ranged anywhere from in the five hundreds to like the nine hundreds. And as you said, just under one percent or just over one percent, occasionally getting up to like, you know, one point three or one point four percent. Actually today it's one point one four percent. So that's a little higher. Um and it's always a little, you know, you never want to see it even nudge up a spec, but that's well within the band that it has Oscillated within again, basically going back from to you know to early June, and rem- and
2: remind us in places like Arizona, Florida, Texas, what are the positivity uh, rates in those states? Fifteen up to sometimes closer to twenty percent.
0: Yeah, I mean they bounce all over the place, but it, it they are routinely in the in the upper teens and occasionally even get over twenty, depending on the state. And and the funny thing, you know, one of the one of the uh, sort of you know, slices of this story that that you may not know about unless you kind of really, you know, get deep into it is that the states that are, you know, that were very pro-reopening, kind of the more Trump-driven states have a lot of ways without necessarily faking the numbers, presenting the numbers in less worrisome ways. And a number of the states that are currently hard hit, Texas, Florida, Arizona... Um, they have their own ways of measuring test positivity. So, for instance, in Florida, the, the the way what test positivity means is what is the percentage of the tests that you gave that came back positive. Now, when we get these daily reports, that does not mean that every test reported was given yesterday or every positive that is reported came back positive yesterday. It kind of, you know, there's reporting lags and everything, but it all kind of comes out in the wash. And so what you do is you divide one from the other. And in Florida, they have their own proprietary formula that they don't share that generates a much lower positivity rate. So Florida, if you go on to their side on any given day, it will often say something like 10 or 11%, where if you just do the math yourself, it's like 18 or 19 or 20%. And what they say that formula is, is that they are removing people who have tested a bunch of times because that kind of doesn't count. And the public, health, public health people would have a better... Sense of well, does that make any sense? Does that you know? Is that is that meaningful? My my sense is it you know it might be it it's it, there's some logic to that, um, but that's not how everybody else is doing it. And generally, the states that are being most aggressive just give you that division. So they come up with these ways to kind of massage the numbers and and oh, we're going to do it this way, do it that way. I think the, the most important thing is just that. When you have all these like proprietary formulas, not only is that a little questionable, it makes it impossible to have an apples to apples comparison. So when, right. when we do it, we just do, you know, divide one from the other. And yes, they so basically in states like Florida, Texas, uh, you know, Arizona, those numbers can be as high as 20 times higher, the positivity percentage right. than they are in New York at the moment.
2: And and tell us why, you know, what was what did you conclude why do you think the numbers are staying so low in new york compared to other places that are that are still surging around the country
0: well the, the, the i think the key question is is it that we are just doing a great job and we're doing really aggressive mitigation and we're sort of you know kicking butt and keeping the numbers really low or does the fact that we had this horrific outbreak a few months ago and the the best estimates, again, with pretty widespread serology testing, suggest that, you know, 20% of the people in New York City got COVID, uh, even if maybe they didn't know it in every case that, that they got COVID. So that's a lot of people. That's not what we traditionally think of as herd immunity. But that almost certainly has some incremental impact, right? Every fifth person isn't a vector, can't be a transmitter. So there's some friction that must create um, in the transmission of COVID, but we don't, we don't know how much. Um, there are other unique things about New York City. New York City has far and away the highest population density of any city in the United States, like twice as high as the next highest. We also have the subway. So we have a lot of good ways to transmit the disease. So which is it? We don't really know. My own sense is that it is mainly just really aggressive mitigation and not reopening that quickly. One um, one argument, one thing that seems probative to me is that in upstate New York, which from the perspective of New York City can mean everything from, like, the counties right outside of New York City, you know, all the way up to, you know, Vermont— A lot of those areas had very low levels of COVID during March and April, but they're down at comparable levels to New York City. So having a massive outbreak does not seem to have been necessary there to keep the numbers down. What in the post you're talking about, the point I made was this, that We are all, the three of us, I think, are all in different parts of New York City at the moment. And you go outside New York City, and like pretty much everyone's wearing a mask. They may not be wearing it right. You see people with it kind of pulled down past their chin, you know, when they're walking on the sidewalk. But I would say that it is certainly. 90% of people I see in just sort of like, you know, sidewalk traffic, people walking around have a mask on their body, right? It may not be pulled up all the way, mostly it is, but there's a lot of masks. And when I talk to people who like say live in Washington, DC, people say like, you know, everybody's wearing masks here too, Josh, but our cases are substantially higher. So it can't just be that. But I think the thing is that, especially in the absence of strong messaging and leadership from the very top i.e. the federal government you really cannot uh, underestimate the sh- the behavior shaping impact of a cataclysm the way that new york especially in new york city and the new york city metro area had in march and april people remember it people remember everybody getting sick and the constant sirens and people dying and you know, you, you experience that and people are like, I don't want to get sick. And I don't want to go back to that, what we had, even if I don't get sick, I don't want to, you know, be trapped in my house and all that kind of stuff. And I just think that, um, my sense is, is that a significant part of the equation is that, that chastening, horrifying experience has just shaped behavior in this area in depth, in a way that is hard to, quite quantify it's not just a matter of the percentage of people you see walking on the street that have a mask or you know are your bars open and stuff like that so it's uh, the the truth is we don't know it's some mix of those and it's and it's uh, you know we're so, we're so divided as a country sometimes these discussions, kind of devolve into sort of, you know, one-upsmanship, you know, who's doing better, who's this and that, but it's really not that. It's important to know because if, if you can keep it at these levels, you want to know how to do it. You know, is, is, is it, is it, if it's, it's, it's kind of a bummer if it is some kind of very low level of herd immunity, since the costs of getting, you know, of getting 20 or 25% of people sick is, are, are horrendous. If you can do it, with just aggressive mitigation, we need to get that word out because then you can kind of open up the economy and then everybody can, you know, live semi-normal lives. And and my sense is, at least, we have tons of evidence from around the world that aggressive mitigation can do it because the reality is that in all sorts of parts of the world in wealthy, Industrialized countries that have the kind of the state capacity and economic capacity to do it, they have super low rates. And even when they say they have, oh, we've got a new flare-up, we've got a new outbreak, like I was, I think I did a post on this yesterday. Uh, people have have likely heard, like there's a new outbreak in Hong Kong. Their case numbers are going up in Japan. There's some surge of new cases in Germany. But when you look at the numbers, they are talking about worrisome surges that make them clamp back down where the numbers are like a fraction of what they even are in New York. So we're so far gone that, you know, what we think is like, hey, New York's doing great. They see is like a new outbreak. So it's it is. uh, it's a hard set of questions to uh, make sense of. Uh, a lot of these things are unknown, certainly especially unknown for those of us who aren't experts, but even for the experts, since we don't know a lot about the disease. But getting a handle of it is a big deal and not just uh, bragging rights, because we need to find out what to do and then make sure everybody's doing it to keep yeah. know, keep the economy going, keep, um, keep us healthy and all that.
2: Yeah. I mean, in the meantime, I guess, just keep wearing your mask, right? I've found those blue paper masks are kind of the best ones for breathability in the subtropical climate that New York city now
0: finds itself in. Um, and just being so finally, able to, th- just being able to throw it away yeah. too, you know, kind of after you use it, I mean, we've ordered like a bunch of them for our family. Cause once you, you know, you can get a little obsessive about it with the cloth mask. Cause you're not supposed to just like put on the mask, take it off, you know, kind of, Throw it on your pillow when you're sleeping. <laughs> you're supposed right. to, the, the idea is you're supposed to take it off and like carefully take it off and right. wash it and stuff. And and yeah, with the with those blue ones, you just like, you know, you can just toss yeah. them. They're no big cost deal. Cost like thirty cents a piece or something.
2: Yeah. All right. So switching gears a little bit, Matt. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the reporting you've done lately. Uh, we we hinted at this at the beginning of the show around this. Um, Gosh, I totally blanked on the name. Operation Legend, is that what it's called? That's right, yeah. Yes, Operation Legend, this federal deployment of uh, law enforcement in multiple cities across the country, Kansas City, Albuquerque, Milwaukee, Chicago. Obviously, Portland is where uh, the most attention has been received, but the operation there, I guess, is a little bit different than what this nationwide effort is. Tell us about kind of how these various American mayors found out about... uh, You know, federal law enforcement coming into their towns, how they how they're dealing with it. What what should people know about what's happening right now?
1: Yeah. So first, I'm going to split it up into what's happening in Portland and Seattle, which is called Diligent Valor. That's the DHS name for it. Diligent what? Diligent Valor. Um, and that's <laughs> okay. what the, the administration does: is sort of the mob violence, riot control. It's, they're, they're sending federal agents to protect federal buildings. Although, as we've written, um, a lot of times these federal agents go well uh, outside the, uh, the federal property that they're there pr- to protect. And then outside of Seattle and Portland, we have something called Operation Legend, which was announced uh, earlier this month starting in Kansas City, and then last week it was expanded to Chicago and Albuquerque. At the same time, the White House sort of let slip in an email that it was going to be expanded to Milwaukee, Detroit, and Cleveland, and the Justice Department made that official today. And so the Portland and Seattle operations, uh, the government says are mostly about protecting federal buildings. Operation Legend is mostly led by the Justice Department, and they're saying it's about fighting violent crime, uh, prosecuting gun cases and drug cases and um, gang cases—you know, kind of the tough-on-crime thing that Bill Barr has uh, made a career out of uh, for, sort for of decades. Sort of conventional,
0: conventional street crime
1: versus yeah, like yeah.
0: antifa uh, militias. Right. Yeah.
1: But one of the problems the administration has had is they haven't communicated the differences between these programs effectively. So last week when they announced that this was going to be expanded to five cities, people in those five cities were saying, wait, you're gonna send agents to throw us into unmarked vans in Albuquerque, you know, or the protests in Detroit aren't really that uh, violent. Why why do we need anything like the Portland situation here in in Detroit? Um, And the reason for that is the federal government barely coordinated with Mayors and police Chiefs in these cities. Uh, as I wrote uh, in what we published this morning, you know mayor, the Mayor of Kansas City was caught off guard because that's the first city in this program that was announced on uh, June uh, sorry July eighth. Basically, a staffer in his office the previous day had sort of spoken back and forth with the uh, local US attorney about maybe, you know, having some more uh, federal uh, assets in, in the city. And then the very next day, it was a Justice Department press release about a major law enforcement initiative. It was in a White House press briefing, and the mayor found out about it on Twitter. He thought they were going to be planning this. He didn't really know. You know, he were, he had this vague notion that the feds were going to get involved in crime fighting in his city. Um, and even after that, that, that sort of embarrassing thing where the mayor didn't know that he was the home city of this major federal operation, two weeks later, we have this expansion announcement and the mayors and police chiefs in those five cities had no idea, or you know, basically no idea that they were going to be involved. And so in at least two cities, and I've spoken to people who uh, think it's more than that, that the operation is basically uh, a recasting of uh, a- another operation called Relentless Pursuit, which was announced in December. And the outlines of the two of them are basically the same, that they're going to, the, the the Justice Department is going to dump a bunch of money and dump a bunch of, uh, you know, FBI agents and ATF resources and marshals into these cities uh, to try to basically uh, goose the uh, violent crime uh, prosecutions. So because there was so uh, little information shared with these local cities, it comes off as kind of political because it, it comes off as sort of a federal government effort that has uh, you know, it's supposed to make the crime situation in these cities better. And yet there's been uh, pretty minimal coordination. Uh, well, and also let, it's just not let me, very let me clear.
0: At, let me ask you, Matt, is it whether it's really a, a, a misunderstanding? Cause my sense of this has been, and but, but as you say, or as I'm learning, you know, there was a version of this they had back in December, you know, long before uh, uh, George Floyd's murder and long before COVID and, and, and everything we're dealing with now that, um, It seems to me that they really are the same thing in as much as creating this narrative of, you know, cities out of control, Trump needs to go in and, you know, bust heads and that they have different sort of premises you know, kind of theories of the case that they can apply in different contexts. In these cases where you've got, like, you know, kind of constant protests and sort of, you know, kind of low-level vandalism and, and, you know, kind of street fighting near federal buildings, they have this kind of uh, DHS angle. You know, we have jurisdiction to police federal properties and kind of like maybe you threw a rock at the federal property and we're going to catch up with you, uh, you know, later in the evening at your house when you're having dinner. So, okay, so that's one thing. And then in these other areas where they don't really have that, it's just, you know, kind of general federal law enforcement where there is... You know it's kind of complicated because you know kind of ordinary crimes are basically a state and local, state and local jurisdiction. But you know there's DEA and there, you know, so is it a misunderstanding or is it, um, you know, that in reality it kind of is all part of the same thing and there's just sort of different flavors they're applying in different areas.
2: Right.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: The White House has, if they haven't mistakenly made it seem like the same thing. It's, they've, they've purposefully tried to create this image that these cities have run rampant with crime and uh, you know that Portland is the same thing as Milwaukee and what they really need is more FBI in their city. Um, for example, the city of Milwaukee uh, said they only realized that they were part of the discussion about this crime fighting initiative because Mark Meadows mentioned them in an interview And in that interview, he said he put Portland right alongside uh, Milwaukee, right alongside, you know, other cities in the quote unquote heartland or whatever, as places that needed federal help. So, you know, Bill Barr has has tried to differentiate them. He said this one's a classic crime fighting in his words and the Portland and um, Seattle operations are about mob violence. But obviously the president has said all these cities in the same breath, you know, so they need to be dominated and under control and so on. Mark Meadows has. And I do want to distinguish between Operation Legend and uh, Operation Relentless Pursuit a few months ago. I spoke with people in um, the Kansas City Mayor's office who said that operation in December, the crime-fighting one, was the product of a few months of planning. And they kind of went back and forth with the federal government about what was needed and what could be achieved and so on. And then to have it relaunched on a day's notice under a different name at the same time that the president is spouting off about how all these liberal cities are out of control, that's what, that's when it became for them overtly political that they were, they would take this carefully planned, uh, you know, operation that was meant to go after gun crimes and murders and federal offenses and turn it into something overnight that was about uh, a white house event. Basically,
0: This is, this is what I wanted to ask you whether, what was usually when there are these kinds of things with, with. The federal government, you know, federal law enforcement. The the baseline is that someone kills someone in a city, that's the police, got a police local police force does with that you got a local da and normally when you have the feds coming in it's because maybe there's you know a certain city has become a transshipment point for drug smuggling or there is an outburst of gun crimes and so you know since things cross jurisdictions you need you know you're focusing on guns what was the focus of what was happening in december
1: right um well, I mean, it's pretty pretty close to what this Operation Legend, the the, the missions are pretty close. So I'll read from the Operation Legend um, announcement today, because like I said, it's pretty much the same thing, where they said they're going to be focusing on combating violent gangs, gun crime, and drug trafficking organizations. Um, so there are federal laws that come into play when you're talking about gun offenses, uh, gang violence, drug trafficking. And the the, the federal government's uh, approach here is basically going after those federal crimes as a way to impact local criminal violence. Um, So obviously, there's a decades-long history of, of uh, especially sort of law and order Republicans using those type of tactics to to really tamp down on cities and to fuel the sort of incarceration machine and so on. Um, but that was the message in December, and that was the message this month, where sort of out of the blue they reannounced this program.
0: Well, you know, there, the before Antifa or Antifa, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sliding into President Trump's pronunciation before. Uh, Antifa was his big bugaboo. His thing was MS-13, this, uh, Central American, uh, you know, origins in Central America, uh, criminal gangs, you know, extortion, drugs, all that kind of stuff. It does, you know, somewhat like Antifa, it does exist, but it has, you know, been made into sort of like a, a sort of a racist, uh, you know, kind of scare thing. Uh, now, so my, my, my question is, is it the case that, that, that uh, you know, drug smuggling or gun crimes were going up in Kansas City? Was it was was something happening? Uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, there, you know, there was this pretty small rise in crime in certain in certain areas in the country in 2015, 2016. Generally speaking, crime is at very low levels kind of everywhere in the country, at least it was until you know a month or two ago. So was there like an outbreak that there was some rationale that they needed to kind of up things or was this just you know kind of sort of uh, a continuation of, of Trump's you know, MS-13 thing?
1: Yeah, it's hard to call anything a spike or an outbreak, but there has been a slight increase in in violent crime, and and specifically violent crime, not all crime, um, and not specifically in liberal cities. You know, there are Republican-led cities in the country where this has taken place as well. And I think if you asked local leadership, uh, they welcome federal help when it comes to that sort of thing. Even you know, Democratic mayors, when it comes to crime and it comes to their constituents, are pretty open to accepting. Uh, especially in Chicago, for example, uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. That they welcome. That I got a letter from the mayor of Chicago to the president, who said, "If you want to help us enforce gun laws, bring in more uh, uh, U.S. attorney staff, bring in ATF resources, and so they they they're open to that kind of thing." It's hard to to say that it's uh, any kind of like landmark uh, year for crime, although uh, in these past few months, I think between like the economic devastation of this virus and just the sort of uh, craziness of everyone staying locked up at home, it there's there's a little trend, but nothing like the White House has uh, has made it out to be. and that's where I think again the politics comes into play of trying to say, uh, the president and the FBI and the DOJ are the last line of defense between you know, right. and anarchy.
2: Right. I mean, Trump is the message. Trump tweets law and order every other tweet, basically, right? He says he's going to protect suburban moms, things like that. He's using all yeah. of these, and all it, these people, quivers uh, in his right. arrows in his quiver. Yeah.
1: And if you wanted to fight crime, there is a way to do that with a federal local partnership, but it's not by announcing it without them knowing, (laughs) you know, you could have under undercover federal and undercover local agents, one of them selling drugs to the other one without knowing they're undercover. You know, you have to coordinate these sort of things or else it doesn't really work.
0: One thing, this is something that I have been trying, I I have wanted to get a better handle on. There is certainly a lot of discussion over the last, you know, eight weeks or so that, you know, in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests that, you know, violent crime is 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 spreading rapidly and stuff and and i do see statistics uh from new york city from other cities where they talk about these uh you know very big spikes in shootings um and i i i assume that is is accurate as far as it goes um shootings are a very you know particular thing it doesn't necessarily you know there are shootings, no one gets killed. Sometimes no one even gets hurt, right? Or seriously hurt. So you don't know exactly what that means. My sense is that it has gone up to to some extent. And as you say, I think a lot of that is there was a lot of just commotion and unrest and, you know, with with the protests, even if it wasn't, you know, caused by them per se. And you have another aspect of, you, you know, People have been locked in their houses for three or four months, and that just that has an effect on on behavior. So it 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 it's not surprising if you would have an uptick. But but you want to kind of go in a little more granularly and say, okay, week by week, let's look at let's look at robberies, let's look at burglaries, let's look at assaults, let, let's look at murders. You know, are they going up in a, in a kind of a, a a significant way. And I, I have not, I mean, so, you know, in some cases, you know, uh, uh, George Floyd, I believe, uh, died something like on May 25th, I believe more or less. So it's basically eight weeks ago. Um, or, you know, eight or nine weeks ago and, and things don't get reported instantly. Uh, they certainly don't get sort of reported up to the federal government until a long time later. So it's a little hard to say, but I, um, I I, uh, I, I'm just interested to know more. And I would say this, you know, uh, as, as some listeners know, my family and I were outside of New York City, uh, you know, about an hour outside of New York City for the first, uh, you know, we, we left not long after the lockdown started and were out of the city uh, for, you know, about eight weeks. And when we came back, what I certainly noticed was you know streets that normally you'd walk through and you're kind of like okay everybody's around and you feel safe because place is packed and everything suddenly like it's not packed and like the people you see kind of like eh, look a little what are you up to you know because sort of you know at a certain level why aren't you inside everybody's getting sick right (laughs) so there is just just a little weird right a kind of an eerie sort of feeling and some of that is just that um i mean i i One thing, and some of this is just our perceptions, that uh, I think one of the impacts on this city is that the homeless, and often homeless who have chronic mental illnesses, had no place to go. So suddenly you have, you know, like just that population on the street. And it may be um, unfair and a negative thing that that can seem a little, you know, strange to people, not that it should, maybe, you know, I want to emphasize what, what we, I think most of us know that the vast majority of, of homeless people with chronic mental illnesses, they're not hurting anybody, they're suffering themselves. Still, it can, it can create an eerie feeling if those are the only people who are out on the street. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that, Uh, changed. And um, I think another thing is, is that I suspect there was an effort to bring people out of shelters, because shelters are not are not safe. You know, it's it was it's safer for people to be out of the shelters in COVID terms. So that's happening. Again, I think you I, I do think in New York City, you've got some level of a kind of a police semi, you know, intentional slowdown, you know, their kind of politics and everything. Police would say, hey, we're getting mixed messages. Suddenly we're not supposed to arrest anybody. We can't, you know, we can't kind of, you know, get physical with the bad guys and all this kind of stuff. But all these things together, and and especially just the impact of everybody being in their homes, that makes people, you know, people are, we are animals, right? You contain the energy too much. People tempers flare so all these things it seems logical to me and not terribly worrisome assuming we're not going to be on you know kind of in covid lockdown forever that you you are going to have a kind of you know some level of of uptick and violent behavior but people create narratives for all sorts of reasons that are not really based on Hard data or things that are real, and so I suspect that it's happening at a at a certain level, but but it is being politicized in you know in in uh, in questionable ways.
1: That that last point is what I've tried to drive at when I'm looking at these questions, um, acknowledging that there there's been a spike in some cities and some circumstances in violent crime and shootings and so on, but then there's this immediate diagnosis. For example, uh, Barr, Bill Barr, during the uh, Justice Department event announcing this expansion, said he he referred to George Floyd's, uh, the, the police killing of George Floyd as that terrible event in Minneapolis, and then said right after that, that we had this extreme reaction that has demonized police and called for the defunding of police departments. And what we have seen then is a significant increase in violent crime in many cities. And this rise is a direct result of the attack uh, on the police forces and the weakening of police forces. So immediately from the White House, any motion toward a a protest movement for social justice is to pin any subsequent uh, criminal activity on that protest movement. Um, There's a quote uh, we used in an article a couple weeks ago um, about the Ferguson effect, which is the same thing that happened uh, during the Ferguson uh, unrest a few years ago, was that um, any violent crime after the fact was was uh, you know uh, authority said because police were drawing back from their work there was a paper by a criminologist and sociologist that found the national discourse surrounding the Ferguson effect is long on anecdotes and short on data and so i love that quote because in order for us to understand what's going on now it's going to take months and years of study and certainly if you're trying to goose numbers to fit a preconceived notion of cause and effect here, the thing you would do was uh, surge a bunch of FBI agents to make uh, uh, arrests on things like, you know, being a drug user illegally in possession of a weapon, which was one of these operation legend arrests. So the cause and effect is really muddy. And I think one of the purposes of this operation, especially of sort of rebooting it, like Bill Barr said uh, the other day, is to uh, show something to the president and to his electorate that, yes, there's something to worry about. And you wouldn't believe what will happen if Joe Biden gets in office and takes these people out of Milwaukee or Detroit uh, or any other city.
0: I I would say if people get a chance to see the video of the statement that that uh, the Bill Barr statement that Matt just read, it's really something because he kind of. It, it's it's not quite captured in the words that he's talking about. Crime was going up under Obama, and the, and he just he 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 tries to like run past his momentary reference to George George Floyd. He's like you know crime was going up, and then there was this really unfortunate incident in Minneapolis, and all of a sudden everybody hates the police, and this and that, you know like he 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 couldn't he he had to run he had to speak he he couldn't even rest with it for a moment in his speech. He just wanted to kind of get past it as a, as a, as a, a a kind of an incident, a tragic, but, but um, a tragic, uh, but, you know, kind of, uh, what word am I looking for? You know, something that doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Just a kind of a little incident that, that, that along the way that, uh, that happened, and we need to mention it, but the real issue is demonizing the police. And, and as you say, this is always the, Um, and, and the reality is, is we, we don't know the effect of, 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 of of these things. Um, there is, uh, I mean, one of the things that has always worried me about the, you know, multi-decade decline in crime that really goes back to about 1990, even though people only really kind of recognized it by the mid nineties is that we really do not know why it happened. And the conventional explanation is, well, we got Comstat and we locked people up and there was, you know, kind of more innovative kinds of policing or more aggressive policing. But the reality, I mean, I've studied this in some depth and the reality is it's pretty clearly not about policing. Now, police obviously don't want to hear that because even even if you take out all the negative things, people work hard, they, you know, uh, want to know they're making a difference. And I'm sure they are making a difference, but they were trying to make a difference in the 80s, too, right? And they were trying to make a difference in the 70s. Um, and we don't know, and not knowing, you you know, it's kind of back to like, you know, uh, COVID mitigation, that if you don't you want to know what works and what doesn't, because then you can keep doing it. and if you don't know, it could just kind of come back again. And as much as as much as obviously we don't want violent crime because we don't want people to be victimized. And we also don't want people uh, rotting in prisons. But the another really big reason is that it is almost a, a, an absolute in human history if you want to bring the right to power in a society have a lot of violent crime. It is like the surest thing in the world. So people who believe in progressive politics and a more equitable society, a more humane society, actually have the deepest investment in keeping crime low, keeping a a feeling of general safety in society, because that's when just, you know, humans are more inclined to, to, Create societies that are more humane and 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 more just, and you know, you start having uh, lots of murders and lots of you know uh, burglaries and all that kind of stuff. People will start thinking like, well, if we have to lock up a lot of people, you know, that's that's you know kind of too bad. And uh, uh, death penalty may not, you know, may be kind of harsh, but like, I need to feel safe in my home. So if Again, people who believe in progressive politics, who believe in a more humane society, have a deep interest in understanding what keeps uh, levels of violence and crime low, because it's almost close to being a prerequisite for uh, progressive governance.
2: Yeah. And Matt, we'll have to have you back on, keep us posted on how these you know, deployments of force, how it goes, and, you know, any flare-ups that, that our listeners should know about. Yeah, so definitely. Keep us posted for sure. But I think that's about about all the time we have this week.
0: Yeah, uh, remember, uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. You can uh, order it at Coldbrew.com. If it's your first time ordering, you get 20% off by using the promo code TPM. Promo code TPM. And you can, you know, pick it up at your grocery or on uh, amazon.com. Sounds good. See you guys next week. Cool. Later. Take care. Bye.